I'm excited about this morning. I don't know about you, um, whether you're new or not, um, this is a great time to be here uh, as we jump into a new sermon series that will take us all the way up to Thanksgiving. From there, we'll move into a four-week Advent series preparing for Christmas, which is crazy to think about that we're on the heels of Christmas. It's only a few months away that we'll be thinking about that. Some of you who are ahead of the game are even buying gifts now, which is quite impressive. Um, for the next few months, though, leading up to Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to be walking through the book of Daniel, one of the, the most simplistic and at the same time one of the most confusing books in, in all of the Bible. This book was written in the 6th century B.C. by Daniel himself, who we will learn a lot about this fall. Um, if, you, if you take a look at the table of contents in your Bible, uh, you'll notice that Daniel, uh, for most of us, uh, is likely located among the prophets. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then you have Daniel right there in the midst of the prophetic books of the Bible. And yet, if you were to open up not an English Bible, but a Hebrew Bible, you would find Daniel among the historical books, which makes sense if you think about it. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel function as historical narrative. So you have characters, you have a, a setting, you have a plot, the epic stories that are easy for us to run to that in, involve scenes like dens of lions and fiery furnaces. In contrast, the last six chapters are apocalyptic in nature, the visions that we tend to run from because they're terrifying and we don't know what to do with them. And we're going to look at, at all of that over the course of the next few months. And so you have multiple genres coming out to play, which makes it difficult to know where to place this book among other books in the Bible. But it gets more confusing than that. From a genre standpoint, it actually breaks up very nicely and neatly. Six chapters of narrative, six chapters of apocalyptic. But from a language standpoint, the book is divided very differently. In fact, the, the book of Daniel begins in Hebrew for all of chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. And then all of a sudden it shifts into Aramaic. And it stays in Aramaic to the end of chapter 7. And then all of a sudden it does a shift all over again back to Hebrew. What are we supposed to do with that? How do you make sense of that? And then on top of the genre and language breakdowns that don't coincide with one another, you have what appear to be parallel chapters. And so you have chapters 2 and 7 presenting these four world empires. And then as you work your way closer to the middle, uh, chapters 3 and 6 represent narratives of deliverance. You have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And then as you move even closer to the center, chapters 4 and 5 declare God's judgment on and his humbling of powerful pagan rulers. There's a lot to this book. Some of these passages are so complex that I had to buy 11 commentaries to get us through this series. A lot of money spent on Amazon. <laughs> I think the question that begs to be answered is this. Why? Why not play it safe? Why go after the book of Daniel? That, that's just on the verge of being as crazy as going after the book of Revelation. What are we doing as a church? There are a lot of books of the Bible we haven't covered yet. Why study Daniel? Well, let me ask a few questions. Questions. And if these questions resonate with you, then I think this is a great series for you to engage. The first question is this. Do you struggle at times to believe that God is both sovereign and good in all circumstances? Do you find yourself at times questioning whether God's really in control? Whether he's really seated on his throne? Especially in moments when everything seems to come unraveled in your life. Maybe that's you right now. 
Do you find yourself at times questioning whether God's really good? Maybe you go, yeah, I believe he's seated on his throne. He's the God of the universe. How could he not be? But I struggle to believe that he can really be trusted with my life. In other words, do you find yourself at times interpreting God's character through the lens of your circumstances rather than interpreting your circumstances through the lens of God's character? That'd be one question. Another question, do you struggle at times to know how to engage culture in a God-glorifying way? Do you ever find yourself wondering, what am I supposed to reject culturally? What am I supposed to receive culturally? What, what am I supposed to actually redeem, to see transformed by the power of the gospel culturally? Do you, do you ever find yourself wondering whether um, you're, not, uh, you're, you're not going far enough? Maybe you're, you're living in the land of separatism, a participant in, a contributor toward this epidemic known as holy huddle Christianity. You ever find yourself wondering whether you're, perhaps you're going too far? Maybe it's not separatism, but rather syncretism, embracing things that compromise your faith. Another question that we could ask, do you struggle at times with the purpose that God has for your life? Do, do, you, do you ever wonder why God has you here in the first place? You ever wonder if God has anything significant for you to participate in with respect to his kingdom and the building of that kingdom? You ever struggle to believe that God is at work in, in the midst of what appears to be the mundane, the quite insignificant? Do you find yourself living in the tension between your plans and the plan of God? These are just a few of the questions that the book of Daniel invites us to ask. And, and I don't know about you, but I wrestle with, with all of these questions, and it's a wrestling that, that I'm convinced is going to continue to happen for me until I die or Jesus returns. Just when I think I've got the sovereignty and goodness of God all squared away, something comes unraveled in my life. And I'm right back at square one, wrestling with the question of whether God's in control, whether he's really for me. Just when I think I've got the, the cultural engagement thing down pat, a new situation presents itself. And, and yet again, I'm faced with the question of how to dig my heels in, in for the sake of the gospel without compromising my faith. Just when I think I figured out God's plan for my life, he throws in some sort of plot twist. You ever been there? And yet again, I'm faced with the question of whether God truly has a plan for, for me. Just when I think I've mastered the art of contentment in the midst of the mundane, life gets really boring. Really boring. And I'm yet again faced with the question of whether God's really at work in what appears to be the insignificant. I don't know about you, but I need truth that I can hold on to and wield like a sword in those moments of doubt over and over and over again. And so that's our hope for you as a church, that this book of the Bible would become yet another weapon in your arsenal and not just to aim at your heart over the next few months, but something that you could come back to and pull out of your arsenal in those moments where these types of questions arise in your life. And so with that being said, we invite you into a new series on the book of Daniel. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter one. We'll be in the first seven verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or maybe you own a translation that's really difficult to understand, uh, feel free to take one, uh, that Bible home with you as the church's gift to you for free. 
uh, we're excited for you to explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time and grow in your understanding of the scriptures. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get rolling. God, thank you for an opportunity to gather together collectively to sing of your praises. What an incredible thing to stand at the back of that room and hear the voices of your people collectively rising in this room for your glory. Thank you for this opportunity to open up a quite daunting book of the Bible and yet a book that has so much for us. God, I pray that you would meet us in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our doubts over the course of the next few months. I pray that you would uh, cause us in the deep recesses of our being, not just at, uh, at an intellectual ascent level, to get a better grasp of your character, to trust in your character. God, I pray that you would give us great hope in the midst of the everyday as we wake up, that we would become a people who anticipate you to work, even in what appears to be the mundane. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom by the power of your spirit to be a culturally savvy people for the sake of the gospel, a people who are not removed as separatists and yet a people who don't embrace everything there is as syncretists, but rather seek to transform the world around us for the sake of the gospel. God, would you do all of that as we spend time tethered to your word for the next four months in this particular book of the Bible? And would you help us to flesh that out as we get smaller in the context of pockets of community? God, we love you. We thank you. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do during this time and work in our hearts and our minds. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Here we go. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, I love how this book of the Bible starts because it doesn't allow us to break Daniel off from the rest of the Bible and turn it into some sort of moralistic tale. We're really good at that. It's really easy to make Daniel the primary hero of the book. In fact, I would dare say that it's happening in church classrooms across the world right now. Be like Daniel. It's the main goal of the story many would champion. We get the first six chapters of the book wrong, and that's the easy part. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Context is everything. Daniel is out to make sure that, that we see that this book of the Bible is connected to a bigger story and a bigger hero. So, so Daniel tells us in verse 1 of chapter 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. it it's like Black Hawk Down. Anybody ever seen that movie? From the moment the movie begins, it's famine carnage and war, right? There, there's nothing hopeful as this movie unfolds. Mass hysteria filling the streets, immediate tension in your shoulders as you start to engage the big screen. That's Jerusalem as we enter into this narrative. The year is 605 BC and Jerusalem is under siege. And so the question that begs to be answered is, how did we get there? What's the backstory? If this were a movie, what would the prequel be? If you're a little fuzzy on the Old Testament, buckle your seatbelt. We're about to go on a warp speed tour of the Bible, which begins with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. God was there. None of us in this room were there. 
Only God, no human beings, no created things, just God. God's the only eternal being in the universe. If you sit with that long enough, it'll hurt your brain. And this eternal God, we're told, created the heavens and the earth. And so God made the sun, and God made the moon, and God made the stars, and God created the skies and the land and the waters, and he created creatures to inhabit all of those domains. God shaped the land into mountains and hills and trenches and valleys, and he shaped the waters into oceans and rivers and lakes and streams. As the crown and glory of God's creation after creating all of the animals to inhabit those domains, he made human beings as his image bearers. And so you and I are created with humility because we're not on the same level with God, and yet we're created with dignity because we're not on the same level with animals. It's quite glorious. And God gave us a cultural mandate. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, I want you to have a lot of babies. And so for those of you who have a lot of kids in this room, you're not a burden. It's a beautiful thing. God said, I want you to exercise dominion over all of creation. In other words, I want you to take the things that I've created and I want you to create culture with those things. And so our first parents, Adam and Eve, walked with God and everything was right and good in the world. There was no sin. Everything was perfect utopia in God's garden sanctuary of Eden. But we're told in Genesis 3 that everything came unraveled that rooted in the deception of Satan and the desire to be like God, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. They rebelled against the one who made them, committing an act of cosmic treason. And as a result, because God is a a good judge who should be disbarred if he doesn't respond, he pronounced a curse upon Adam, and a curse upon Eve, and a curse upon Satan, and a curse upon the world as we know it. As a result of man's rebellion, sin and suffering entered the world, which is why when you look around, everything is not as it should be. And so for several generations following Genesis 3, we see depraved humanity at its finest. If you've been told that the book of Genesis is nothing more than a bunch of children's stories, somebody lied to you. If you were to put that on the big screen, it'd be rated R in a blink. There's some disgusting things that come out of the book of Genesis if you actually sit down and read it. Some very disturbing stuff. And so God judges the world with a flood, we're told, sparing only a man named Noah and his family. You hit the fast forward button a little bit, you find man rebelling against God um, at the Tower of Babel. And as a result, we have division and dispersion of people. God has a new beginning to take place as he makes a covenant with a man named Abraham and his family. If you hit the fast forward button again, God's people end up enslaved in the land of Egypt and God uh, frees them through a man named Moses in what we call the Exodus. They end up in the wilderness for about 40 years where God gives them the 10 commandments. And after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God finally gifts them with the land that he promised Abraham. They start off being ruled by judges, military commanders as we would define it in our language but they start to look around at all the kingdoms that surround them and go, you know what, we wanna be like those guys. We wanna be like those kingdoms. We want a king for ourselves. And so they established the monarchy with the first king of Israel being a man by the name of Saul. Saul is followed by uh, the gloriously biblically known King David, who's then followed by Solomon as the third king of God's kingdom. Solomon's the one who establishes and builds the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Solomon ends up committing a lot of idolatry, if you go read his story. 
And following Solomon, idolatry is rampant throughout the kingdom. And as a result, the kingdom is divided into the north and the south. Eventually, the northern kingdom is exiled to Assyria. And the southern kingdom, which includes Jerusalem, is eventually exiled to Babylon. The Babylonian exile comes in three waves, the first of which we read about here in Daniel 1. So that's where we are in the Bible. If you're fuzzy on the Old Testament, hopefully that catches you up to speed. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it and exiled the people of God. As we pick up the story in Daniel 1, things are, they're not looking good for God's people, are they? Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shiner, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. What are we supposed to make of that? Yahweh, the God of the Bible, can't keep his sovereign hands on his own loot? Picture the scene. A bunch of pagans sitting around, just, just like we gathered this morning singing, praise Marduk, the king of Babylon, from whom all blessings flow. Can you imagine looking in on that worship service as an Israelite? The absolute humiliation of Israel and her God. And it gets worse. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature of the language and language of the Chaldeans. So the king not only wants the plunder, he wants the people too. And not just anybody, he wants Israel's best and brightest. He's going for a certain demographic here because not everybody can work at Abercrombie, right? This was actually common practice in terms of kingdom conquering strategies. You take the most competent as prisoners of war, you assimilate them, and you use them to run the world that you want to run. Because you see what happens is simultaneously uh, you weaken the conquered land by depleting it of its key leaders and its future leaders. And at the same time, you strengthen your own land by varying, uh, adding those various key leaders to, to your own uh, kingdom. And so the goal is assimilation, which is why the king has a plan to immerse Israel's best and brightest in all that is Babylon. According to the end of verse 4, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. In other words, you could say it this way. A remnant of God's people are about to get schooled at the University of Babylon. An education that, that would have included the study of astrology, mythology, omen reading, and dream interpretation. And if you homeschool your kids, you should be freaking out right now at this point in the story. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So not only are we talking about a Babylonian education, we're also talking about the development of Babylonian taste buds. This is a full-on assimilation process. And according to the second part of verse 5, there's a final exam coming. Three years of assimilation, and then you get to stand before the king in all of his pagan glory. Verse 6. Among these were Daniel. There's our boy, 
Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So now we learn that Daniel and his buddies are on the king's radar. They make the cut. Teenage boys who are considered among Israel's best and brightest, soon to be enrolled at Babylon U. And just when you thought the humiliation of Israel and her God couldn't get any worse, the boys are given new names. Now, at first glance, you might ask, well, what's the big deal about that? Where's the humiliation in that? For, for those of you who have kids, you, you may understand this. Many of you named your children based on the meaning of their name. Right? Our oldest daughter, her name is Lanier Jane. Lanier means wool worker, and I really stretched to go after this one, but I thought, you know, my, my daughter's going to be amongst the sheep. You know, that's, that's who she's going to be. She's going to be amongst the flock. And then Jane means gift from God. Lanier Jane, a gift from God amongst the flock of God. That was the thought behind that. And then our youngest daughter, Quinn Marie. Quinn means counsel or wisdom, our little wise sage. She doesn't appear that way just yet, but she's getting there. <laughs> and then Marie, her middle name, she's named after her mother. Her mother's middle name is Marie. There, there was a purpose behind the naming of our children. If those names were stripped away from our kids, it would mean something to us. Daniel, Danny L, Elohim, means God is my judge was given the name Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel meaning Lord, referring to Marduk, the Babylonian God. From God is my judge to may Bel, the Babylonian God, protect me. Hananiah, Yah, Yahweh. Yahweh has been gracious. Is given the name Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, the moon God. Mishael, El, Elohim, again, means who is what God is. In other words, who is like God? He's given the name Meshach, which means who is what Aku is, this moon god of Babylon. Azariah, Yah, Yahweh is my help, is given the name Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, the Babylonian god of wisdom and agriculture. Daniel and his buddies, when they were born, were given names rooted in the character and redemptive work of the God of Israel. And now, they're being stripped of those very names and given names representative of pagan gods. And that's not the worst part of verses 6 and 7. You're like, man, can we just stop? It just keeps getting worse and worse. Where's the hope? There's a little detail in verse 6 upon which the fate of the entire world rests. And it's the simple phrase, of the tribe of Judah. If you go back to Genesis 3, God promises to send a hero in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin who will crush the serpent Satan's head and rescue his people from sin and death. The scriptures in the Old Testament declare that this hero will be a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah. In fact, if you fast forward the story to Revelation 5.5, Jesus is declared to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. It's really hard to feel the weight of that tension when you know how the story ends, right? But, but in, in this moment in Daniel 1, the, the history-altering question is this. Will the tribe of Judah be swallowed up by Babylon? 
will the lineage of David be extinguished in the midst of exile? Will the promised hero come and set all things right? I think the question for us is this. Where is the, where is the good news in verses 1 through 7? There are many churches that would go, we're not going to stop with the first seven verses because they're just depressing. Like, we got to keep going. We're going to do all of chapter 1 to open this thing up. Where's the good news? Maybe that's the question of your life right now. Where's the good news, God? Seems like everything's coming unraveled for me. Just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. The answer to that question is found in three simple words in verse 2. And the words are this, the Lord gave. You see, you can read this story from three different vantage points. You can read it from the historical vantage point, which declares that Nebuchadnezzar besieged. And some would go no further than that. It's just an act of human history, one empire more powerful than another. It happens all the time. Mighty Babylon conquering not-so-mighty Judah. Some might take it a step further. Go, it's not just historical, it's covenantal. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar besieged, but Israel rebelled. That according to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God made a covenant with his people, and a covenant that included blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, including exile. So God's just making good on his word here. In fact, in chapter 9, as Daniel is praying to God, he talks about Israel's rebellion as leading to this very exile. So there is an ownership in that. It's possible that our sin is the cause of our very unraveling at times. Certainly true of Israel. But, but even the covenantal vantage point doesn't tell the whole story. Daniel 1 isn't simply the story of a mighty Babylonian king conquering a not-so-mighty nation. Daniel 1 isn't simply the story of a rebellious people experiencing the consequences of their sin. Daniel 1 is the story of a sovereign God who, despite appearances, is seated on his throne. Three times in chapter 1, we encounter the phrase, the Lord gave, or God gave. It's quite ironic. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's steering the ship of human history. The mightiest of human kings at this point in the world. But it's God all along providentially working to accomplish his eternal purposes over and over and over again throughout this book. You're going to see it throughout the course of the next few months. God is steering the entire story. His plan is never thwarted. I love this verse from Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. It says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. It says, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God is in control of the entire story. Sure doesn't look like it, does it? Maybe that's what you say about your life. Sure doesn't look like God's in control. I hear what you're saying. 
I love what Daniel does here. The word for God in verse two, the Lord gave, it's not the word Yahweh, which is the most often used term when referring to the name of God, which means covenant Lord. That's not what Daniel goes with here. Rather, it's the word Adonai, which means ruler or master. What Daniel's saying is, don't buy into appearances. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar besieged. Yes, Israel rebelled. But ultimately, the Lord gave. That God is the one at the helm, no matter how things may appear. And so the question becomes, do you believe that? Throughout the course of this series, we're going to talk about how to engage culture for the glory of God. In fact, we'll see it next week. We'll see how Daniel and his friends respond in light of that phrase, the Lord gave. We're going to talk about God's purpose for our lives, even in the midst of the mundane, the insignificant. But the question for this morning is this. Do you really trust God with your life? We're coming back to the question from earlier. Are you interpreting God's character through the lens of your circumstances? Or are you interpreting your circumstances through the lens of God's character. Because here's the deal. Circumstances change. God doesn't. Despite appearances, God is in control. And not only that, he deeply loves you. See, some might say, I have no problem with the sovereignty of God. I'm good with that. It's the goodness of God that, that I question. If he's seated on his throne, why is this happening in my life? Yes, God gave, but he gave the Israelites over to Babylon. What do, you do with, what do you do with that? If you have a Bible in hand, I would encourage you to flip back to Jeremiah chapter 24. It, it, there, there's something critical there that I think we need to see. Jeremiah prophesies of this time in human history. God gives him oracles. He gives him visions. Uh, for interpretation as it pertains to the Israelites in exile. And, and as you look at Jeremiah chapter 24, you pick up the story. It says this, After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, uh, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. This is Jeremiah, okay? Here's the vision. Behold, Two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, kind of stuff you want to go to Sprouts and buy to throw in your fridge. The other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten, the kind of figs that you buy at Sprouts and you don't eat, and then three weeks later, they're just disgusting in your fridge. That's the picture. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, right, this is brilliant, figs. <laughs> the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad. So bad that they cannot be eaten. Jeremiah is up for the task that God has called him to, right? Then, then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says. Here's, here's the explanation of these two baskets of figs. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. That's Babylon. I will set my eyes on them for good 
and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. That's the promise for Daniel and his buddies. But, thus says the Lord, like the bag figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt as well. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of this earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. See, here's the crazy thing. According to Jeremiah 24, it would have been far worse to have not been brought to Babylon. Right, we get in our minds that Babylon, you know, it's this wicked place. We start off in the Bible, we find it in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, uh, where, where this tower uh, of Babel is being built up so that man can make a name for himself. And all throughout the Bible, you, get, you go fast forward to the book of Revelation, and Babylon uh, is considered uh, a name associated with wickedness, with vileness, with idolatry. And so it's hard to see at first glance. But it would have been far worse to have not been brought to Babylon. It would have been a horror, according to Jeremiah 24, a curse to either remain in Israel or be taken to Egypt. And so, yes, the exile to Babylon is God's judgment upon his people, but it's also his grace toward his people. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, Babylon is the recipient of both a curse and a promise simultaneously that God will preserve a remnant by his grace. He promised to send the hero, and it's going to happen. You might say, well, I'd really like to be on God's good side. How does one become a good fig in the eyes of God? Well, here's what we do know. God doesn't operate like Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't look over the earth, picking all the competent, good-looking people for his team. Praise be to God. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's, the world is not divided into good people and bad people. Rather, according to the scriptures, the world is divided into bad people and Jesus. The gospel tells us that Jesus is the only competent one in human history, the only good one, the only sinless one the only one worthy to stand in the presence of a holy God and not be incinerated in a blink by his 5,000 degree centigrade holiness. We can't save ourselves. On our own, we're hopeless. It's quite amazing that God would allow himself to suffer the kind of shame that we see here in Daniel 1, isn't it? The plundering of his temple, pagans dancing and singing to their gods in apparent victory, but isn't that the heart of the gospel? A God who would suffer great shame in order to redeem a people for himself. A people who could never redeem themselves. A God who would die the most humiliating of deaths in order to give us life. See, the, the hope of these first seven verses in Daniel 1 is the very hope of the gospel. The Lord gave. For God so loved the world that he gave 
He gave his son. We, like Israel, have rebelled against God. We've turned away from him. Jesus never rebelled. Rather, he lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die as our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place so that we who believe in him would not perish but could enjoy making much of God forever. That's the beauty of the gospel. This is really hard to believe at times, but did you know that if the only hopeful expression of that phrase the Lord gave in your life was the giving of his son, you're the richest man or woman in all of the world. It's so easy for us to wave our fists in the face of the Almighty, especially here in the Bible Belt. Check your boxes. You do that enough, and all of a sudden you have this, this warrant for waving your fists in the face of the Almighty going, you owe me. Look at all these boxes I've checked. I've done all the right things. I've steered clear of all the don'ts. How dare you not give me, fill in the blank with however you might finish that sentence. If God gave us what we deserve, we'd all be done for. At best, we deserve his wrath. Yet he gave us his son. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so I ask you this morning, is that enough for you? Again, it is really hard to say yes to that question at times, isn't it? It is for me, especially when things get hard, especially when the brokenness of this world engulfs us. We deeply need to be reminded often that God has been unbelievably kind to us in giving us Jesus. The Lord gave. And because he gave us his son, we can trust that anything else that he gives us is for his glory and our good. That God hasn't lost control of the wheel. He's not sweating it from his throne in the heavenlies. In the worst of human circumstances, if you're his child, he's got you in the palm of his hand. How encouraging is that? And there's a purpose in the suffering. Every bit of it, every last drop of it is meant to conform you into the image of the Son of God. And to draw you into deep intimacy with Father, Son, and Spirit. When Jesus breathed his last breath, I'm sure it felt a lot like Daniel 1 for his followers. Based on appearances, I guess mighty Rome wins yet again. Based on appearances, I guess the devil of hell gets all the spoils. But three days later, <laughs> the very gospel itself tells us that things are not what they seem, people. God is seated on his throne, and he loves you deeply. If you're not a Christian this morning, I am pleading. I'm pleading with you to set aside your attempts at trying to get into God's good graces based on your own merits. It can't be done. Instead, turn to Jesus in faith with nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith. Find your rest in him. Find your hope in him. He loves you so much. And if you are a Christian, be comforted this morning by the truth that you are deeply loved by God. For some of us, the application this morning is to do nothing but soak in that. You are deeply loved by God. You are a child of the King. God has a great purpose for your life, even in the midst of the worst of sufferings, just like Daniel and his buddies. Be encouraged by that truth and fight the good fight of faith in light of that truth. In a moment, we're going to take communion. 
If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We do so here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to take communion, sit with those questions. Where am I as it pertains to the character of God? Is it a struggle to believe that he really is seated on his throne, that he really is in control, that everything's not just spiraling out of his grip? Is it a struggle to believe that he really is good, that he really does love you, that he really is for you, that there's a purpose even in the midst of the most difficult things that you're going through? For some, maybe we just need to sit in the glorious hope that the story doesn't end in Babylon but rather there will come a redeemer who will rescue his people and his name is Jesus and he is ours for the taking this morning. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.